Our reading this morning is Acts 15, 20 through, 22 through 29. And it's going to sound very much like a rewind or a repeat or a rerun to you. Because what we have in today's reading is the same teaching from last week, but now put into a letter, which will become a circular letter that will be carried by foot and hand to the several churches of the Gentiles, these new bodies of Christ, mostly populated by non-Jews. And what we're going to do today is give some special focus to something that we heard at the end of last week's reading in verse 20, but we hear it again in this morning's reading in verse 29. And to put it most simply, what we are giving our focus to is the apostles and the elders' requirement that the Gentiles repent and continue their repentance against all idolatry. Let us pray and then read. Most gracious God and Father, we thank you, we praise you, that we could be at your feet like Mary to hear your word now. We pray that you would give us ears for the voice of the master. Oh, Father, give ears to our sons and our daughters. Give ears to all whom you have gathered here to recognize his voice, to indeed come out from the world, to indeed follow him with new zeal, new joy, fresh and strong faith. Oh, gracious Lord, we pray that your Holy Spirit would indeed illuminate your word to our heart, to our mind, to our will, that we would all receive the grace to take responsibility for what we hear today. Oh, Lord, bless us now, for you are the God who blesses. Open your hand to us, shower us with the treasures we need that we might trade upon them in the days of head in the days ahead, to your praise and honor, through obedience and faith, through faith and obedience. In Jesus' name, amen. Acts 15, verse 22. Then it seemed good to the apostles and the elders with the whole church to choose men from among them and send them to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas. They sent Judas, called Barsabbas, and Silas, leading men among the brothers, with the following letter. The brothers, both the apostles and the elders, to the brothers who are of the Gentiles in Antioch and Syria and Cilicia, greetings. Since we have heard that some persons have gone out from us and troubled you with words unsettling your minds, although we gave them no instructions, it has seemed good to us, having come to one accord, to choose men and send them to you with our beloved Barnabas and Paul, men who have risked their lives for the sake of our Lord Jesus Christ. We have therefore sent Judas and Silas, who themselves will tell you the same things by word of mouth. For it has seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay on you no greater burden than these requirements, that you abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols, and from blood, and from what has been strangled, 
and from sexual immorality. If you keep yourselves from these, you will do well. Farewell. This is God's word. Last month, one of the most highly qualified men to lead a professional sports team was hired by such a team in the country of Australia. As their new chief executive officer, this man came with all the skills necessary to do the work. But within 24 hours of his new job with a professional soccer team, he had to resign. He had to resign, he said, because, and I quote him from his public statement, my personal Christian faith is not tolerated or permitted in the public square. The news media had discovered that this man, Andrew, is also a board member of a Christian church. And the pastor of that church has at times preached publicly against the sin of homosexuality. Learning of this, the sports team forced Andrew to make a choice. Either resign from the church, the the church board in particular, or resign from his new job. They did not want anyone who had the church connections Andrew had running their company. This story from just last, last month reminds you and I that our devotion to Jesus Christ will sometimes disrupt our lives significantly. Our devotion to Christ will at times disturb, unsettle, shake, turn our lives upside down. Our devotion to Christ will mean we often lose out in this world. There is, of course, a way to avoid all this trouble. Andrew could have told himself that the God he worships does not mind if he quits his church and finds a new kind of church, one that agrees with all the lifestyles that those outside the church find valuable. Andrew could have avoided his troubles if he told himself that his God allowed such as that. But what kind of God would Andrew then be worshiping? Not the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. He would be worshiping a counterfeit God, a God of his own imagining, an idol. If a Christian believer takes upon his lips the preferred pronouns of those who are clearly not the pronoun they prefer, Are we not being invited to worship a God who is not the true and living God? Ask your brother in the faith, Daniel, and he will tell you the answer. To confirm to someone that they can be whatever they want to be other than what God has made them to be is to deny the true and living God. And we Christians are subject to these temptations. We are even subject to these sins because we fear the gods of the nations. We should praise God, and I do praise the Lord. Andrew 
did not surrender to idolatry. By grace, he continued in the repentance begun years earlier when Christ first saved him. So a Christian man named Andrew in Melbourne, Australia, continues to forsake the world, continues to take up his cross, continues to follow Jesus Christ. Now this forsaking is what our apostles and elders in the Jerusalem Council are calling all new Gentile believers to do in our passage. The four requirements that you see listed in 1520, which then get written into the letter at Acts 15.29, which then get repeated in Acts 21.25, which then get restated in Revelation 2.14, and then again in Revelation 2.20, these requirements, they are all about the need for Gentile believers to keep on repenting of idolatry. Luther was right in his first thesis of the 95. All of life is to be repentance. The Jerusalem Council of Acts 15 resolved two major issues, one about faith, the other about repentance. First, they resolved the question, what is necessary for Gentiles to be saved? You see that this is explicitly the first question in verse 1 of this chapter. The answer, Gentiles and Jews will be saved the same way through the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. See that in verse 11? Through faith alone and Christ alone are their hearts made clean before God. You see that in verse 9? So the sinner is completely reconciled to God because the sinner now possesses by faith the righteousness of Christ. In fact, the whole Christ is united to the sinner by faith. It is Christ who both gives the believing heart and then gives, him, gives himself when that heart believes. The second resolution of the Jerusalem Council was a resolution on repentance. This is what the four requirements in verse 20 and verse 29 are all about. And we did more work in those last week than I'm going to do this week. The apostles are requiring all Gentile believers to forsake a world that is so familiar to them, the world of idolatry. You must forsake the sacrifices and the ceremonies of pagan temples. You must forsake the public and private feasting, drunkenness, and sexual looseness that belongs to your neighbors who participate in idolatry. But understand, your duty to forsake these things, to repent, does not cause the pardon of your sins. Faith alone, in Christ alone, cleanses all sin. Verse 9 again. Repentance makes no satisfaction for sin. That was clearly underscored in verse 9 and 11. But repentance from idolatry is required of all who have turned to God through Jesus Christ. Now, there's something we must understand about this requirement for repentance. When the apostles and elders 
require this repentance of Gentile believers, they were calling for them to reject the most common way of advancement in their world. Participation in idolatry. Idolatry was a thriving industry in the ancient world. It was as ever-present in that world as sports are present in your world. Now, is the pastor saying that sports is a kind of idolatry? Well, one of my pastor friends calls the, the Lambo Temple uh, a, a place for pagan worship. Um, we'll call that the 19th hole today. If you'd like to talk about that, I would love to. But I'm simply right now making this point. As almost omniscient as sports is to you, idolatry was to the Gentile in the ancient world. They couldn't avoid it without great personal cost. <clears throat> Public meals at the temple, the pagan temple. Business deals at the pagan temple. Climbing the social ladder, go to the meals at the, at the pagan temple. Proving you were educated, proving you were someone important, proving you supported country and culture, proving you loved your fellow citizens, you better show up at the pagan temple. All these things were accomplished by participating in the common idolatries of your neighbors, honoring the false gods of the empire. If you really want to dig into this, read the letters from Pliny to Trajan, the emperor. You'll see how important it was. Now, to reject this idolatry made you a loser. And in some cases, to reject it made you a threat. Rejecting idols makes you dangerous to the peace of a society held together by common idolatries. Whether that society is small, a family, or larger, a company, or larger, a city, or larger, a country. When we get to Acts 19, we will see that a riot broke out in the city of Ephesus because Christians were forsaking the idols of the city. A man named Demetrius started that riot. He was a businessman. He made and sold silver trinkets in the form of the temple of Artemis, the local goddess. He urged other businessmen to get out and fill the streets with rage, and they did. It was a tradesmen riot. In Acts 19.26, Luke records a small speech from this Demetrius. Here's what he said. See and hear that not only in Ephesus, but in almost all of Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away a great many people, saying that gods made with hands are not gods. And there is a danger not only that this trade of ours will come into disrepute, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis may be counted as nothing. That's Demetrius, a man whose income is based on the continuance of idolatry. 
wherever people turn, wherever people turn to the true and living God through faith in Jesus Christ, visible counterfeit gods begin to die, but not without conflict. Think about a 10-year-old boy. Think about a 10-year-old boy who used to carry a rabbit's foot in his pocket for good luck. Do any of you know what I'm talking about? He made sure he had that rabbit's foot whenever he went hunting or whenever he had to ride his bike the three miles to school. He learned all of this from his dad. But then he started going to church with mom. And he learned that Jesus is our only sovereign ruler over all the circumstances of life. And this boy learned that Jesus loved him. Without anyone knowing he was doing it, he threw away that rabbit's foot. He was ashamed because his hope for safety in the world was in a counterfeit God, a God who was not real, a false God who helped him only if he carried the foot of a rabbit in his pocket. He suddenly saw the absurdity of it when he heard the truth of Christ. But rejecting that idol brought conflict into his life. His father was mad at him for throwing away the rabbit foot. Some of his playmates thought he was an idiot for throwing away a rabbit's foot. And at times, over the next few years, he had conflict even in his own heart. He sometimes wondered if he was missing out on some good things because he didn't carry the rabbit's foot. But by God's grace, this 10-year-old boy kept up his repentance. He grew stronger in the faith, strong enough, in fact, that when he became a man, he could reject the grown-up idolatries of the 21st century world. I want to think with you for a few minutes about these grown-up idolatries of the 21st century world. And whatever they are, they have their beginning in the same place as all the oldest idolatries of the ancient world. Idolatry begins in the sinful human heart. Satan took advantage of our creatureliness, our potential for change, and he made a wicked suggestion that the pride of our eyes and the pride of life swallowed. And we became worshipers of counterfeit gods. Satan, knowing that image bearers cannot but be worshipers, shifted our worship to the creature, to the creation, to ourselves. Idolatry begins in the sinful human heart. It does not begin outside of us. You cannot escape it by getting off the internet. You cannot escape it by moving to the middle of Montana where you can't see anybody's roof. You cannot escape it by throwing out your Christmas tree. You cannot escape it by only eating vegetables and only buying things that are organic. 
idolatry begins in here. We heard that from our reading in Ezekiel 14. The elders of Israel came to God, but God saw something inside of them that they could not see. They had taken their idols into their hearts. You see, it is in the heart that we first fear and first desire. It is in the heart that we first begin to calculate how to be okay in the world, how to live a life of meaning. All of that calculation is in the heart. Like a volcano, the heart erupts deep down with false loves, false trusts, false fears, false hopes, false pursuits, false masters. All the physical images of gods and all the physical images of deities that have ever been crafted by the hand of men were first a desire in the heart. As one pastor put it, the heart is ready to worship, ready to serve, ready to hope in whatever it thinks will make life work. Whatever it thinks will secure life against a hostile world. Whatever will give us satisfaction, the sinful heart will make it a savior. This is why the Lord repeatedly told the people of Israel they needed a circumcised heart. Their problem was first an inward problem. They lusted after the constellation of idols that were orbiting all around their nation, among the nations. They lusted after them because their hearts were damaged. They desperately wanted a security they could control. Under idolatry, you are always under the illusion that you can control the outputs of your gods because you control the inputs. I'll just serve him a little bit more, and I'll get a little bit more. It's very transactional idolatry. Listen to what the people of Judah said to the prophet Jeremiah. He had just rebuked them for their idolatry, but they reject his rebuke and vow to continue their idolatry. This is one of the most frank vows of disobedience you will find in all of scripture. It's Jeremiah 44, 16. They say, as for the word that you have spoken to us in the name of Yahweh, we will not listen to you, but we will do everything that we have vowed making offerings to the queen of heaven and pour out drink offerings to her as we did both we and our fathers, our kings and our officials in the cities of Judah and in the cities of Jerusalem. For then we had plenty of food and prospered and saw no disaster. It's like voices are coming right out of their hearts. Idolatry is worship and service of anything we think will provide for life's most basic, physical, and emotional needs. Until our hearts are made new by the Holy Spirit, we will never think that God is our most basic, physical, and emotional need. Think about it. Our most basic, physical need is not to live a long life. Mm -mm. It is to be near to God whether we live or die. And think about it, our most basic emotional need is not to be well-adjusted so that people are drawn to us. 
Mm -mm. It is to be daily washed in mercy so I can love God with all my heart, with all my soul, with all my strength, with all my mind. Can you imagine how weird a psychologist would think such a person is who loves God with all that is in them? They wouldn't write down, well-adjusted. But until my heart is made new by the Holy Spirit, through the mediation of Jesus Christ, I will always think that some creature or something in creation is my most basic need. Which means an idol can be anything, anything except God himself. I can never love God too much. I can never desire God too much. I can never hope in God too much. But I can love a thousand created things too much. 150 years ago, Alexander McLaren put it this way, what I prize most, what I trust most utterly, what I should be most forlorn if lost, the working aim of my life, the hunger of my heart, that is my idol. A friend, a brother, a wife, a husband, pleasure, respect, power, control, freedom from pain, comfort and affirmation, understanding, sympathy, desirability, looking good, speaking well. All of these things can be elevated to become of divine status before our heart. And the Lord will see it even if you don't. When we elevate these or any one of these, we see them then as offering a kind of salvation from the hellish life we envision if we don't have them. The Heidelberg Catechism asks this question at number 95. What is idolatry? I wonder if anybody knows the answer. What is idolatry? Idolatry is having or inventing something in which to put our trust instead of or in addition to the only true God who has revealed himself in his word. Beloved, even Christians, even Christians with hearts made new by union with Christ, even we need to be urged to keep repenting of our inventions, of our desires for counterfeit gods. In fact, it is because we are new in Christ that urging us to keep repenting is so reasonable to us now. We now want to please God. We now have the ability to turn from idolatry. So listen to how John, the apostle, urges believers to abandon idolatry. In the very last verse of John's first letter, the apostle says, little children, keep yourselves from idols. Now the urgency 
of that pastoral command is proven by its location. It is the last thing John says in his letter. He wants it to be ringing in our heads when we finish our reading of his letter. But the command's urgency is underscored by something else. It is underscored by the fact that John has not used the word idle, nor the word idolatry, nor the word idolatrous, anywhere else in this letter. When he uses it in the last sentence, it pops out like a jack-in-the-box. And you almost go, ah, what did I miss? How did he get on this subject? Where's the rest of the letter? That's it. Which makes a careful reader want to go back and see if John was pushing us away from idols all along. And we find out, indeed, he was. In chapter 2 of his letter, John says this, Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. You heard John put great emphasis on two things there, the world and desire. David Paulison, our departed brother in the Lord, he has shown irrefutably that the Greek word apothemia in the New Testament is the replacement word for idolatry that's found so often in the Old Testament. He has demonstrated this without fault. Desire in the New Testament language is idolatry. Not all desires, and we'll get to that. But where does desire come from? Not from the world, beloved. Please get this right. Desire does not come from the world. It comes from the human heart. The heart with its grasping and its demanding nature desires the things of the world and desires them with such force and consequence that desire for the Father cannot coexist because of a different God already having been chosen in the heart. Already loved in the heart. Which means, as Paulison himself said, people do not have needs. We have masters. We have lords. We have gods. Be they oneself, other people, valued objects, or even Satan. We don't really live by our needs. We live by our lords. But John says, in the very last sentence of his letter, Little children, keep yourselves from idols. He says this because through Jesus Christ, we have been liberated from bondage to false gods. We know that we are from God and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one, John says in the sentences just before his last. We know that, he's saying. He's celebrating your blessedness. You know what's really going on. 
You know that all the things that the world is trafficking in and offering to you, you know that the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know him who is true and we are in him who is true. In his Son, Jesus Christ, he is the true God and eternal life. Little children, keep yourselves from idols. Now you've heard the last paragraph. Beloved, we are those who are spoken of by Paul in his first letter to the Thessalonians. This is who you are. You have turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus who delivers us from the wrath to come. First Thessalonians 1 Thessalonians 1.9. Well, what are you doing with your life? Well, I'm waiting. I'm, no, seriously, what are you doing? I'm waiting. I'm waiting for Jesus to appear. To wait for the Son. To wait for the Son from heaven means we do not now have all the glory we will have, and we know it. But we know this. We know that this is why we are waiting. We know it is not our calling to have all the glory we will have right now. We know that it is our calling to only have it when Jesus appears because Jesus is our glory. We know, therefore, not to chase after the glory that we see in this present evil age. Christ is our glory. We wait for him. But waiting also means something else. It means we deliberately let all the gods of those who do not, who do not know Jesus Christ, we let all their gods keep passing us by. It's like we are at a bus stop and the wrong buses keep pulling up. They each have a destination over that top sign, not to Appleton or Menasha or Nina, but the destination is politics. The destination is pleasure. Well, it's really all the neighborhoods of Vanity Fair. The destination is comfort. The destination is the glory of youth sports. The destination is the glory of family, the glory of the weekend. The destination is on the bus, and all these wrong buses keep pulling up to where we are standing, waiting. And when they pull up, the driver stops in front of us and opens the door and urges us to get on. But by God's grace, we say, no, I am waiting for someone else. And do you know what all those bus drivers are saying about you as they talk about you on their CB radios? By the way, I'm not disparaging bus drivers. It's an honorable profession. But do you know what all my bus drivers are saying about you? The guy they could not coax to get on the bus. They get on their CB radios and all the bus drivers say, that guy out there, that gal out there, who does not get on our bus, he is overcome. She is overcome by desire. That's right. That's right. The bus drivers say, I've never seen such strong desires in those who aren't getting on the bus. And they're right. You see, those who wait 
on the appearing of Christ do not have lesser desires than the world. We have stronger desires than the world. By the Spirit, our desires have become strong and formidable and hungry and thirsty and particular and singular for the person of Jesus Christ. And where did these desires come from? Well, one of the drivers says, the last time I saw such contramundum desire, contramundum means against the world. The last time I saw such contramundum desire was in Jesus of Nazareth. How would the bus driver know that? Because they're all demons. All idolatry is the mastercraft of devils. Paul says so in 1 Corinthians 10. You see, idolatry is psychological, demonological, and sociological. The world, the flesh, and the devil all conspire to keep us worshiping counterfeit gods. So this bus driver says, I've never seen such desire, such contramundum desire, except in that man, Jesus of Nazareth. And that's because your desires have become the desires of Jesus Christ, for he dwells in you by faith, Jesus Christ, the hope of glory. Let us pray. Father, we do ask that you would give each and all who have heard your word today the grace needed to believe it, the grace needed to even take up their cross and die now and enter the world of the living, those who are united to God through Jesus Christ, who has been raised from the dead and is seated at your right hand and is coming again. But even now he has subdued us by his gospel, by his wonderful forgiveness of our sins and his wonderful outpouring of his spirit. Father, bring all into the kingdom of life through the king of life. Father, we confess that it is our Lord's pure devotion, not our own, by which we have been reconciled to you. An examination of any one of us will find we continue to return to idols of our own heart, our own making. We would be condemned if we were measured for heaven by the quality of our devotion. We thank you that we are measured by the quality of Christ's devotion. Lord, we confess how good it is, how blessed we are that he now lives in us and that we cannot do as we want to. The spirit wages war against the flesh. So Lord, we pray. We pray for all who are hearing that they would not wait another day to indeed mock the idols of their heart and set their heart and faith and hope on Jesus Christ and live for him and understand that the Lord Jesus is the most basic need for life, that he is our most basic need for physical matters and for emotional matters and for all things. Whether we live or die, he is our life. Father, help us in all the things we have to do in this world. Help us not be proud. Help us not 
be a hindrance to those who are yet worshiping the gods of the devil? Help us indeed be a help. Help us be full of mercy, compassion, and truth, and courage. Help us lead no one away from the true and living God by the words of our lips. Forgive us for all the ways we have failed you. Liberate us, O Lord, again. Speak to our heart, for we will recognize the voice of one master. Let him speak. In Jesus' name, amen.